Welcome to the 43rd episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your hosts, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guests, Seth Katz and Jared Marcel Paul. I'm your host, Brian Birnbaum. We're here today with Seth Katz, a writer of fiction and an ardent art critic. I came up with that. Copyright it. And you can find his review of Yellow Earth by John Sayles in Slant Magazine come January, for which you're being paid, right, Seth? That is my first paying gig as a writer, I'm happy to say. And we're also here with Jared Marcel Pollan, author of the debut story collection, The Unified Field of Loneliness and the forthcoming novel Venus and Document, both out or forthcoming from Crow's Nest, the imprint from Political Animal. And so before we get started today, I'm just, you know, I'm going to come out with it. You know, I'm, I'm feeling churlish as fuck today. It was supposed the churls? To, yeah, I got the churls, dude. It's bad. <laughs> it's, I, got, I got the churls. That's how they say it in Baltimore. Yeah, dude, it was supposed to snow. I don't know if I've announced this on the podcast yet, but I'm a, um, I'm basically like, you know, I want to say Paul Cosin's godson, but no one knows who the fuck that is, and they should look him up. Is that the guy who was screaming about the no? Nah, uh, so that that's what I'm saying. I'll I'll say I'm Jim Cantori's godson, even though it's bullshit. It's it's just that's I feel like such a sellout for saying that. But uh, Paul Cosin, everyone look him up. He's 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 the godfather of winter weather uh, uh, meteorology forecasting, etc. But uh, so yeah, if if he was. If he was with me today here in this room, maybe I wouldn't be feeling like this. Maybe he would have told me exactly what was going to happen. Maybe he would have told me that I was gonna, I was gonna wake up to chimeric dreams of just a whitened New York City, only to find out that you know, as usual. Was he near omniscient and his ability to predict the weather? I mean, honestly, man, no, because no one is. <laughs> Let's be honest. No, no, he was not. He was not. But he was damn good. He was better was than the, the rest. Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, he was it. Um, he was. So the wait, you're not getting you're not getting snowed in. This was a false alarm. It was, man, and uh, I was on board. The 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 Nam the Nam was on board. <laughs> All right, man. We were in range. The Nam was in range. We were in range. All right. So, anyways, I'm upset. So and I'll that's why be, we're having this podcast. And that's why we're having this podcast. I will. Uh, I will be probably commenting throughout and referencing how upset I am and maybe getting more specific, but let's, uh, let's try to talk. Been, uh, how long have you been doing your own, uh, forecast there, Brian? You know, I, I'm going to tell you right now, it all started when I was at a baseball practice an indoor practice because uh, it was the winter time, but you know, I played Metro ball and you know, we were all fucking serious about it, you know, and in the lobby of like the, the facility, on the Weather Channel, they said it was going to snow. I was like 10 years old, 11 years old at the time. And and then four days later, when they said it was going to snow, it snowed. And I was I was absolutely just, I was transfixed by that prognosis and, and the confirmation of that prognosis. And so I became obsessed like the with... The Oracle some, of Delphi. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, and dovetailed with the fact that my friend Dave had the fucking dopest sledding hill known to man. Yeah, it was just it was just this maelstrom, so to speak, of just joy. So slowly over time, I got into the science of it, you know? And so I just started following the mo- all the models, you know, I can I can list them off for you here, but I won't bore you. And so now I have legions of fans. I mean, at least double digits following me on Facebook to get the weather and I've let them all down today. That's the only reason I'm I've let every on single one of them down for the weather updates. I know. I know I, that that probably represents like 70% of my uh, digital friendships is, is because of. Right. That's we, we should say here that Brian keeps us all very up to date in our group chat on the, uh, yeah. the climatic so events happening in uh, the New York, in the New yeah. York yeah. city area and also the greater East coast. Even for me being here in Europe, you know, having absolutely no relevance to me whatsoever, Brian keeps me very well informed as well. It's really important stuff. And I think, you know, I think my lowest moment over the last 24 hours was when I texted you guys in all caps, wham, bam, thank you, Nam. Because <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I, I thought sleeping. we I, I thought we were in for it, man. I thought we were in for it. 
And then it, and then it, then it busted harder than my first time spanking it. Uh, all right, it's supposed to be Let's a dry move on. Supposed, supposed to be a dry run. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It really was. It was supposed to last all day. Uh, it never works out like that. Okay. Anyways. Uh, yeah, let's this talk is ab- where 75% of listeners have tuned out. Now, let's talk about books. They're still here. Don't worry about it. So, yeah, what do we want to talk about? You guys had some ideas. I know, Jared, you mentioned the Zadie Smith New York Times essay, which I'd be okay with discussing, um, even though I only read half of it because I agreed so just so fervently that I was just like, I'm done. I don't want to disagree with this at any point. <laughs> Wasn't that piece in the New York Review of Books? Yes, it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we were, yeah, we thought it was, yeah, we thought it was going to be situated near my, uh, the ad for Emerald City, but it wasn't, and so I despaired. Maybe that's why I stopped reading it. But yeah, so I don't know. Jared, do you want to, did you, did you finish the whole thing? I did, but. Yeah, give, give a, give a synopsis. Give a, because, you know, Seth didn't read it, but, you know, he's, he's a smart guy. Okay, so we got we'll bring, someone we'll so we up. got someone here who assented to the piece so much that he didn't even bother to finish it. Someone who didn't read it, and then me who read it like five weeks ago and remembers like a quarter of it. Yeah, that sounds like one of our writing workshops. That yeah. sounds perfect. Yeah. Okay, that sounds so, absolutely perfect. <laughs> well, I think, if I remember correctly, and I apologize if I get this wrong, but I seem to remember that Don't worry, but it, it wouldn't be the first time today. The, I'm sorry. It was this, it's it's early, but I had to say it. <laughs> It's just, you know, it's been a hard day for me. Anyways, continue. <laughs> I think this this question about whether or not you should write outside of your own experience, particularly when it comes to people of different groups or people of different ethnicities or colors or sexes or whatever it may be, was something that I think was closing in around Zadie Smith for a while in the sense that she had been asked several questions about it, not because she's guilty in any way of, you know, violating any norms, but I think she had been asked in some interviews with journals and things like that. And she had always kind of declined the question because she didn't want to hang herself by giving the wrong answer. And so when that piece appeared in the New York Review of Books, it seemed to me like something that she had probably been thinking about and working on for a while. And it read as very, I use the word calculated hesitantly because like, I don't want to make it seem like there was any sort of like, you know, like PR involved in it, but it it felt like a very safe position for her to take in classic Sadie Smith fashion, no disrespect to her, but it felt like a very safe article in which she said basically what we already know, which is that we as writers need the freedom of our imaginations. And a big part of that is imagining the lives of others. And that's a big part of empathy, which is what literature is all about in alleviating loneliness. Great and, movie too. And <laughs> great, great movie. And writers are writers are multiple people. Writers are full of contradictions. And she quotes that Walt Whitman line, you know, do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes. And she uses that as the the essential irony on which this whole argument about whether or not you can write outside of your own experience kind of hangs. And coming from someone like her, I think she has the clout and she has the status to be able to make that argument without getting too much flack for it. I don't know. I didn't read any of the follow up on it or any of the comments on it. I'm sure some people came down on her, but I have well, a feeling. Well, I'll say she 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 also she kind of indemnified herself by coming back to the Walt Whitman quote from what I remember and and using it as an example of okay, but what do we also know about Walt Whitman? You know what I mean? Mm. Like he had episodes of bigotry is the probably the best way I can put it. It's the it's Vegas fuck. He, he but, held views that were common yeah. to to white men in the 19th century United States. Right. She kind of uses it to come back and say, here's why I think she made it very safe for her. She came back and said, basically, well, you know, fiction has always been evolving. It was some eloquent version of maybe I'm the old woman on the porch right now, you know, saying this is how There's a curve, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so fiction's always evolving. So maybe it has evolved past this thing where, you know, we should be able to imagine anyone else's life. So... That's where I thought she was being extremely safe because she was just hedging. You know what I mean? But I did agree with the entire piece in the sense that, but I would extrapolate it even further. I mean, fiction as a technology to me is running into, I think the conversation can, it can get anachronistic pretty quick because I think something she didn't allude to is, okay, well, if, if it's further than just 
identity politics or something like that, demographics, like who, who deserves the right to say what. I think pretty quickly it's going to become an actual technological argument, but I don't want to go there right now. Well, no, I actually, I think that's, that's actually, that's exact, exactly right. That actually yeah. touches on a number of things that I think we can talk more about. I'll just make two quick points here. One, well, Brian, when I interviewed you for the millions about Emerald City, we talked about this a little bit. And when I have gotten feedback from people about that conversation, a lot of people have pointed out something that you said as being especially astute, which is that, you know, the the only way this conversation ends is that you can only write about yourself. If you can't write about people who are of, you know, a a different ethnicity, a different background, a different class than you, you know, if you keep kind of going down that rabbit hole, then the only way it ends is that the only proper subject for a writer is him or or herself or their self. But related to technology, I mean, I know I actually brought this up in the last podcast we did, and I don't know why I'm so fixated on it, except, well, you know, Dave Eggers wrote What is the What? I don't know if anyone's read that. I'm sure nobody in the world has read it in the last 10 years, but it's about a real person, a refugee from Sudan, I believe. And, you know, he met with this person interviewed him, had extensive conversations, and then wrote a novel in the first person. He, he wrote a novel about this guy in as him in the first person. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to imagine that happening today for, for a number of reasons. Uh, but as far as the technological argument that you're making, it seems to me that rather than write a novel in that way, the first thing that anybody would do would be to make a documentary, to let that person tell their own story in a very direct way, rather than having it be mediated through what is, in fact, an anachronistic piece of technology, which is the the codex, the novel, the the written form. Yeah. And I don't don't find it to be anachronistic at this point. I I still think that, you know, as I said in the interview, I think that we did that I think the, the novel is still very relevant. Unfortunately, it's I think more relevant than people realize, because I still think language, especially decoding language, through you know decoding someone's consciousness through language is and is an enormously beneficial tool for one's emotional and and just outright intelligence but i think i'm especially thinking about maybe 10 20 30 years into the future you know what like i mean I, you know i'm not expecting us to be you know at a point of peer to peer like cognition or something at that point though i do think it's somewhat possible elon musk is out there working on it right now as we speak facebook has cochlear technology you know, that they're working on as we speak that would do something like this. So if you go down this rabbit hole of who deserves to say what, well, in 10 or 20 years, we're going to be saying who deserves to know what about another person. So to me, it is somewhat of a ridiculous conversation in a way. And and let me give you an example why, because that might feel like a tangent. Because Seth, you just brought up the fact that you know, Dave Eggers went and interviewed this person, right? And the reason you bring that up is because I'm assuming this person is of another race, um, another ethnicity, another yeah, a culture. Completely entirely. alien experience to anything yeah, Dave completely, Eggers has ever. Right, right. And so uh, I just did a, a podcast with um, a woman, Atia Abwe, um, about her YA novel. And she's, and though she's a refugee, and 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 though she, you know, has has cultural ties to the characters that she wrote in her book who were largely refugees whether they were afghan or um syrian she was american you know she's american you know she grew up in california she was a refugee as a baby you know so her her experience of coming over here is really blotted out by just you know being that young and in no way shape or form not only do i not think not, not only do i think she deserves to tell that story because she's a writer and that's just what writers do. But, you know, I also know that people in our day and age will give her the benefit of the doubt the same way that people in our day and age give me the benefit of the doubt writing about deaf people just because I grew up with deaf parents and I have been around deaf culture, which assumes that just because I've had a certain experience, a very specific experience that can be, that's extremely generalized. And yes, there's a lot of truth to it. It assumes that I know more than someone else about something. Well, while there are sign language interpreters out there who hang out with deaf people more than I do, who are more fluent in sign language than I am, who might have a greater interest in deaf culture than I do, but if they wrote, you know, who knows, you know? So when I say anachronistic, I just mean it in both directions of chronology. Like, this literally can't end in any other way than one person 
thinking about their own experience or everyone being allowed in to know their each other's lives. Does does that make sense or am I completely off the rails right here? It does, but I think the the argument coming from the other side is somewhat at odds with what the other side's actually trying to achieve. So for example, there's all this emphasis on awareness, you know, and like seeing your blind spots and like recognizing biases that you might have but don't realize that you have. And so we're talking about points of access here, like how do you have conversations? How do you get to learn about other people and the experiences that they have that you're not conscious of or never even thought about before? And I see the novel, for better or worse, as a point of access. And talking about what you were saying a moment ago, Brian, you grew up with deaf parents, so you have some access to that culture. It might not be as thorough as some others. But you have enough, you have a hinge into that world where you can allow your imagination to carry you into places that other people who maybe have more access to that world but are not novelists would not be able to go. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to perhaps learn something or glean some kind of insight from your perspective that they may not have known before and to hold you to a certain standard and say that you know you shouldn't be writing about something because you have only shallow knowledge of it is to indict almost, you know, every novelist in the history of literature, because all novelists, as we know, do a certain amount of research for a particular subject. And then you just kind of finesse the rest of it. You do enough to, to be able to get away with it, to be able to get by and to make the reader believe Mm -hmm. this is an essential part of suspension of disbelief, right? It's part of the contract with, uh, that we make with fiction. So to, hold writers to this criteria of like, well, you don't know enough about this, or you're not part of this group, or you know, you don't have any access to this community, or if you do, it's only shallow, or it's only, you know, indirect, and therefore, maybe it's better if you don't weigh in on this, I think is just defeatist in principle, and it's the death of the imagination. You know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's actually an argument to be made about why there is, you know, there is a definitional boundary between fiction and nonfiction because it's a very interesting debate yeah because in the sense of if you define something as fiction then yeah i mean i think that's that's what gives people the freedom to investigate whatever they want otherwise why would people be up in arms about james frey lying about things in a a million little pieces you know well i don't well i don't don't know if everyone was up in arms about that i think oprah just got hoodwinked by and then she felt betrayed and so her Outrage was manifested en masse through everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think some of that was um, she had a platform in which I, I like I, I think people wouldn't have known exactly. Not nearly as many people of what would have known without Oprah putting it on blast. You yeah. know. So I do think like you know people were outraged to the degree that they that each individual that I mean, they listened like that they listened to here. Oprah and then felt like fools after. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Book club Man, sucks. You sound anyway. like Jonathan Frank. Yeah, you sound like Jonathan Franz, and you better rein it in there. <laughs> yeah, my my thought my thoughts on on fiction are just so paradoxical because I, I at once think it's this I don't know I just don't know I want to say that it's kind of like this almost this pastiche of an art form, but but I do think it's only because we're more entertained by uh, more passive forms of entertainment, and you know blah 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 that comes back to the old old man on the porch kind of thing. You know, this is how we did it back in my day, even though we all grew up with the internet and everything. But I think that's what says something, right? We all grew up with the internet, and yet here we are, and we've done deep investigations. You know, Seth, you're you're a film critic. J- Jared, I mean, you... I don't, I'm not sure if you've written any film reviews, but, like, we... You and Seth could. I did the. I did the. Jared had a scathing yeah, right, piece right. on our friend and Lars we, von Trier. Oh yeah, I'm sure you ripped him a new asshole, but uh, but yeah. So so there's two people here who are heavily invested in the new, like you know, quote unquote, newfangled passive entertainment that's been around for less time and is still a representation of somewhat of like you know the new like golden age of TV, which you know then lends into documentaries and 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 whatnot and true crime or true like true TV, and still yet here we are all talking about how novels are worth it, how how literature is still worth it. And the reason I think that is, is because there is no other way to see inside a person's consciousness. Absolutely. That matches, that matches the way that they turn a phrase and the matches the way that they say things, not just what, what they're talking about and what they think about, but the way they say something. Yeah. The way, and especially, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, We'll just, I was just going to say the way perception is intrinsically connected to language. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, 
I don't know, bringing that back to Zadie Smith, I did think that, I, I do, however, think that as safe as it was, and I don't know, Seth, maybe you've heard enough to chime in after me, because, um, I don't know, I, I am interested to hear what you think about this, but as safe as it was, I did see, I did see it as immensely true, you know, every generation has their thing, where the older generation goes, that's fucking bullshit, you know, and it's hard for us to hold perspective, and, 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 you know, while I sit here, I, it is hard to say, okay, it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes. Okay. So, you know, if, if I was going to do it myself, if, if someone, if someone wrote a book about deaf culture, I will say outright, I wouldn't mind at all. If someone had not grown up with deaf people and just did their research all to me, the only thing that would matter is if they got it right, if it was good, you know, if not, then the right, book so, gets I mean, shitted on. I, right. I, you know, Jared I mean, brought up the word imagination earlier and we've all kind of been reaffirming this idea of you know all that really matters is whether you can pull it off but then you know there's the question of who decides whether the author pulled it off i mean you would have some good insight on that if someone wrote a novel about deaf culture you know you would be in a good position to say you know is this accurate is this is this fair is this true but Mm -hmm. you know i having very little contact with the deaf community you know i could read the novel and say well this feels true to me it seems you know, it, it feels real as I'm reading it I, and I believe it, but then someone, you know, you might come along and say, well, that's not how it actually is. And those are, those are two different things. There's so I mean, many, whether you can pull it off on so, a narrative level, but then, you know, whether you are, as I think many people would say, doing justice to the community about which you're writing. Yeah, no, I mean, and you're definitely right about that. The unfortunate fact is it's so nuanced that, you know, like, like, uh, like the example I brought up about Atia, you know, is she immersed in Syrian culture? No. But because of certain peripheral traits that she has, that she is technically a refugee and that, you know, and and she's done immense research, you know, and, and she grew up, you know, it just gets so nuanced. And, and, and I'm thinking back now to that, you know, the, the review that everyone, everyone talks about. What was it in? Okay. All I'm going to say is, and this is true, I just have zero actual like not i don't know the title but i I just remember there was a book that came out and someone that was closer to the culture than the person who had written it i believe it was a white woman who'd written it but i you know again don't quote me on this (laughs) reviewed the book and gave it a glowing review and then everyone jumped down the reviewer's throat kind of saying this was appropriated that's like the gist of it you know so seth that's like kind of going back to the whole yeah Okay. If I well, can, uh, if I can, you know, kind of jump on my John Sales soapbox for a minute. Yeah, do it. I mean, I, you know, he's John Sales coming know, out, coming out with a slant. John Sales. Well, getting, here's he's, here's he's getting, the thing. He, I mean, John, he's getting John paid Sales. For it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John Sales is one of the. You know, I'll take any opportunity to beat the drum for Mr. Sales. He's one of the great living filmmakers, but he also has had a, a very successful career as a novelist since the 1970s. Yeah, that's actually the only way I knew him. I didn't know I didn't know he made films. I'm not going to lie. Interesting. Yeah, you know his his output as a novelist has been a little more sporadic since he became a filmmaker. But you know, I think he said he mostly you know writes during uh, during writer strikes when he can't work on screenplays. Mm. Then he'll work on on prose. Anyway, fucking scab. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> Sales has been renowned throughout his career for his ability to write about so many different communities. I mean, one of his early films was called Liana. It's about a woman kind of coming out as a lesbian, and his film Passion Fish is about an affluent, you know, soap opera actress who becomes a paraplegic. And her, you know, kind of push and pull relationship with her, you know, kind of nurse or caretaker who's a, a black woman recovering from, you know, drug addiction. So I'm assuming I'm assuming he's the scriptwriter and the director. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but also, okay. I mean, in, in his novels, I mean, Los Gusanos is a novel about kind of Cuban exiles, mm-hmm. you know, after after Castro came into power. And anyway, the, the, the point here is, you know, in the introduction to one of his short story collections, Dillinger in Hollywood, Sales talks about how the main kind of motivating force behind his writing is curiosity and interest in people. You know, sales, if you want to talk about diversity in fiction, I mean, sales has been kind of an exemplar of that in practice throughout his career, but he's never fetishized diversity. You know, he's, he's never really made a point of it. It's, it's really just kind of come about naturally by the fact that he is is just curious about different kinds of people that he has read about or has met. And I think that should be the, the, 
the motivating factor behind any fiction writer is just that interest in other people. Mm-hmm. You know, sales never set out to fulfill some quota in terms of diversity in his work. He just happens to be a naturally curious person. And so he's written about everything from coal miners unions in West Virginia in, you know, the early part of the 20th century to the Philippine American war. And I, I think, I think he's, he's, I think he should be a role model for, for any fiction writer in the, the way that he, he approaches uh, his, his work. Would that in itself though, I mean, isn't that the axiomatic argument that any, everyone kind of, I mean, maybe I'm wrong that everyone kind of already understands and like still, it's confronted with the fact that he doesn't deserve to do it. And, and, and I'll say this with the caveat that I do think film is just a lot more forgiving for some reason. Not, not totally. I mean, we all know the drama that surrounds the, uh, the Oscars, especially in terms of representation. And, and speaking of like fetishizing representation, I mean, that's, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I honestly don't buy their, their actual passion for, for equality. No, in that no, arena. no, it's, no, it's, it's, <laughs> It's disingenuous as all hell. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Talking about diversity quotas or meeting the demands for diversity, these movie studios like you know Disney, for example, which seems to own everything now. They own Star Wars and they own Marvel. And yeah, don't get me started ha- on that shit. We we have these movies now, like you know Captain Marvel's a woman now, and then we have Wonder Woman, and we have you know apparently the new Thor movie is going to have a female Thor, and the new James Bond it looks like is going to be a woman, and everybody's sort of you know, glad handing this whole thing and saying like, what a mark of progress that is that we're sort of flipping all of these longstanding institutions that had male leads and making them female leads now. But the fact is that these studios make very expensive products and they need 99% certainty that they're going to get an ROI on mm-hmm. these movies. And so any movie, movie studio that is going to, you know, hinge the whole film on a lead actor that they're not confident will deliver that kind of performance and that kind of money at the box office is not taking any chances whatsoever. These movies that have like these, you know, strong female protagonists now, I'm not being cynical about it, but like that's, there's no risk being taken there. Marvel movies do not take any risks whatsoever creatively. And so Disney shouldn't get any kind of, you know, pat on the back whatsoever for having a female superhero movie. Yeah, I, I guess, I that's guess not the way- diversity. That's just bullshit. I, I, That's just pandering. I guess maybe to uh, mitigate any cynicism within that argument is the fact that I think I think the evidence that you're right is, is embedded in the fact that if they were really serious about it, then yes, they'd probably make a totally different movie based around a whatever. It, that's that was what that I thought wanted. when I saw you know what Ocean's I mean? uh, was it Ocean's what was the uh, Sandra Bullock one was it Ocean's Ocean's Eight? Yeah, see, there's another example. Well, but so so that was. There's no reason that had to be tied into the existing Oceans franchise. I mean, they could have said, "All right, let's just make a heist movie, but with a bunch of women." No, but that's a, no, but that's the I thing feel, though. It's I like th- that's that's the studio hedging their bets. It's like we don't have the confidence in this film in and of itself and the cast, and so we'll make it like a spinoff of this other series that everyone loves, and that'll be more reliable and more bankable. Right, because yeah, the film, and I, they, they don't, I they don't, they don't deserve it. Yeah, they don't deserve any credit whatsoever for having an all-female cast and doing something like that. I see it two ways. I mean, <clears throat> I see it in the cynical way that you do in the in the sense that I'll take it even further. It's I like, I think I think they can sort of trick people into thinking that they're doing something special when yeah, you're right. Sandra Bullock's already huge. She's been making money. A Sandra Bullock movie is going to pull. You know, we all know that. At the same time, I kind of also see the other side in the fa- in the sense that, you know, like paralleling this back to what Zadie Smith is saying, I, I kind of pull back and go, well, if this is what people like now, you know, this is how you make equality then. You know what I mean? Like, right, you know, well, if, yeah, if give the people what they want. Exactly. If, if this is what if, if people want Oceans, another Oceans franchise, you know, at some point they do have to have a female cast because at some point it is going to be like out outright, you know, there's going to be inequality, you know. No, but see, this so is it, what I'm it, saying. Yeah, it, it it's demonst- tough. It's tough. It's tough to kind of balance that because I think in the at the end of that rabbit hole is like, why the fuck are we still making Oceans movies? <laughs> exactly. Know? It's like, it's, yeah, exactly. It's like the Oceans <laughs> films or like the Ghostbusters remake or like the like 40th Marvel movie that they're now making. All of these franchises demonstrate a complete lack of imagination and originality on the part of these movie studios but like you flip the cast and you make them all female and suddenly it's like oh this is 
you know, Disney is so woke now. Like they're really right, sort of, right. They're, and, and, they're, re- they're really, you know, hitting the mark and they're really recognizing their blind spots and like, you know, all that other shit that people love to hear. Right. And I'll, and I'll say, and I'll say it to another point of like, you know, mitigating the cynicism in it is that you look at the movies that have that same sort of that same cast, like, you know, the Ghostbusters movies, a lot of the people that were in that movie were also in a movie like Bridesmaids, completely original mm-hmm. idea in the genre of the that kind of comedy that was coming and out, and that, movies, yeah. and that movie was huge. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, I, I do know what you mean. They're 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 doing something they don't need to do just to pander, and really, it is about the money, and it is kind of bullshit. So, it it does take away from this idea of, you know, that these big corporations are doing some something virtuous. But I don't know. I'm trying to bring it back to to fiction because, like, how does you know? I'm trying to I'm trying to wonder how does that relate to the to to the idea of whether who deserves to say to say what I mean I see something about like you know we could look at we could go back to the studio you know and say okay they're they're deciding to make this movie who's in that room you know what I mean mm-hmm. do like is their board of directors still completely imbalanced I don't know I'm trying to find a connection between <laughs> well I think this is why it, this relates to what you said earlier about why it's easier to get away with certain things in film. And that's because it involves a lot of different kinds of collaborators. I mean, if you, you know, if you're, uh, uh, if you're John Sayles and, you know, you're writing, you know, you're writing characters who are, are Cuban and then you cast them with actors who are Cuban, they are actually bringing their, their real experiences to, to their roles. So even if you have been somewhat deficient in the writing, which, you know, Sayles never is, but let's, you know, for the sake of argument, you know, you might, you know, uh, the actors might save your ass a bit by right, you know, telling right. you, well, you know, either by su- actually suggesting revisions or just by filling out the role emotionally in a way that that nobody else could do. Yeah, well, the, the, and this and this goes both ways too. And I should say, on the other side of this argument, like going in the other direction, I'm actually completely for casting, you know, unknown actors or maybe not even unknown actors, but famous actors from other countries or of other ethnicities in certain Hollywood movies. So if you think, for example, like a movie like the Ridley Scott film about the Exodus story, the gods and Kings movie with Christian Bale, like I think Christian Bale played Moses in that movie (laughs) and Ridley Scott was criticized for that. And he said like, well, if I had cast like some guy, some Egyptian guy in that movie, you know, it wouldn't have made any money, which is ridiculous of course, because there's a actually a long history of very talented and successful Egyptian actors in Hollywood. And uh, Remy Malik is an example of one currently, and he won an Oscar last year for Bohemian Rhapsody. Or, you know, take a film like, I don't know, like Valkyrie or something like that, where like Tom Cruise plays like Klaus von Stauffenberg or something like that. And he doesn't even put on an accent for it. And it's completely ridiculous and unbelievable having an American like that play a Nazi officer. So like, you know, Hollywood made these movies all the time where like they banked on their stars to play roles that they totally were not suited to play. And now, you right, know, Charlton Heston in, the, in Touch in, of Evil, you know, in in Brownface playing exactly. Mexican. I mean, what the hell was that? I think the point is that it's it's not that Sandra Bullock and company aren't equipped to play an Ocean's movie. It's that they're they're throwing this thing together without the thought of making something that they really are behind. It's that it they're it's lip service, right? It's lip service to the idea. Rather than saying, let's actually create something, you know, that's made for the originally or or bring or if we're going to do an Oceans movie, let's let's bring someone in who's passionate about the project or else we'd all be talking about, uh, you know, every single, you know, we, we, we would all be screaming for this franchise to continue. You know? Right. So, so it's about so authenticity. Maybe, yeah, exactly. And so maybe trying to bring this back to the Zadie Smith piece and to literature. I just want to say, just to put it out there, I don't think we need to you know, pat ourselves on the back for being so accepting of something that we already know we're accepting of. So like, we don't need to pretend that Black Panther is a better movie than it actually is. You know, like we don't need to make ourselves feel good about stuff that we already know that we're ready for. And we have been expecting for a long time. So I'll just say that, but as it relates to the Zadie Smith piece and the question of literature and what literature is able to do and what it, I guess you could say ought to do or what it could do. I think it goes to this question of whether or not you believe that art should be on its best behavior. So this is the argument. This is the, you know, the, the curve that the culture is on. So if the culture is going in one direction and it's starting to demand something, if the spirit of the times are changing, does art have a responsibility to meet those demands at best or 
at worst, very cynically kowtow to them and pay lip service to them like these Hollywood films are. So is it the, is it now incumbent on novelists to sort of recognize which way the winds are blowing and to write for the audience now in this way? Does fiction have to be on good behavior now? Does it have to be responsible for what it says? Because the audience has a level of sensitivity that in the past they didn't have? That's a really good question. Honestly, I wish I could say something different, but I can't help but keep coming back to the fact of, is it good or not? Right. <laughs> and I say this because I'm thinking about two, I think two really good examples because they're set in in times when when Zadie Smith's white teeth came out. And I and I I'll say up front, I think that's why she, that's where a lot of her responsibility is is uh, born from because I think you look at that book and it's yeah she's she's writing about a range of cultures of from which she you know she doesn't she doesn't really come from except for the fact that she's English you know but so the wire came out around that time maybe a little bit after but pretty much around that time and it was very called for because you know because because Jared you're talking about the responsibility of art. Well, the responsibility of art was we have a system called the war on drugs that's completely ineffective and and pretty much pretty much breeds the problem that it tries to solve. And a lot of that is, you know, inner city, largely black poverty, which breeds the kind of crime that, you know, comes from, I mean, a need for sustenance, honestly. I mean, you know, of course, like there there are there are malevolent features that come out of that or come out of greed you know when when someone gets too big or something you know blah 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 but i think art called for that at that time and and it and in no way was that a, a show that pandered to anything i mean it was just so fucking real we all know that's one of the best shows ever made but and then and then you fast forward and you have a show like moonlight at the time that the wire came out i mean i'm sorry a movie like moonlight at the time that the wire came out I mean, in The Wire, you can hear homophobic slurs just thrown around casually. You know, it's like it's like all of the all of those shows at the time. You go back and watch Friends, like sitcoms like that. It's like it's kind of you kind of cringe. You know what I mean? Mm. But the thing is, and, and and I'm not justifying that at all. I'm saying quite the opposite. I'm saying Moonlight is one of those movies that it's like we're looking at what's the reality on the ground, and they just depict it so perfectly that it's just a great movie. That's what it comes down to. It's just real. That's it. You know, when we, when we see, you know, and that's why to me, it's like this discussion always begins with, is it good? Because in the end, when I look at, you know, a Marvel movie, I just don't think it's good. So when you remake it with like a certain cast and, and, you know, and rebrand it as a certain way to appease like a certain demographic that like, you know, we, we all know has been oppressed and like, we all know is disenfranchised. It's honest. It's honestly to a certain extent, at once, I think it's great because I think, in a way, it needs to happen. At some point, moves need to be made, and I do see that angle. But it's also, in a same, in the same sense, kind of insulting to me. You know, it's it's kind of like you know, being Jewish myself. I've heard so many fellow Jews say, "I cannot watch another Holocaust movie." It, mm-hmm. it gets to the point where it's it feels like they're just soliciting this this like suffering. You know what I mean? And, you know, and we have the great ones like Schindler's List, Sophie's Choice, all this, all this shit. You know? I wouldn't put Schindler's List up there, but. Oh, you don't like that movie? Wow. Well, I'm, not, okay. I'm not well, saying well, that. You know, Fair enough. I mean, it's awfully sentimental. Yeah, okay. You say? No, okay. Well, relating this, relating this back to literature, keeping this on the yeah, track sorry. of literature. Seth, I know that you know this. Philip Roth got a lot yeah. of flack for that in the early days from the Jewish community because he wrote about the families that he knew, the Jewish families living in New Jersey. And he portrayed them as sort of petty and, and neurotic. frugal and neurotic and like concerned about money and like very sort of puritanical and having very sort of archaic attitudes about sex and like all these sort of Jewish stereotypes that you would expect. And he got a lot of flack from Jewish critics, especially saying like, you know, people have been saying this stuff about us for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. And now you're gratifying mm-hmm. all these stereotypes by writing these books like you should know better, like you have a responsibility to not do this. And this is exactly, I think, what we're talking about here. It's like there's a distinction between being good and getting something right. And art can be good and get something right at the same time. But is it possible for art to be good without getting something right? Or with, or at least not, not recognizing the obligation to have to get something right? 
And I think Roth is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah his, that, novels, his novels are almost certainly not right in that sense. That I mean, that's very interesting, and it's a dangerous question in these times. And I, but I, I really like the question because the so fact his novel, the and, ghostwriter, is yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say again. You know, there's a there's that's why I think that it there is a definitive boundary between fiction and nonfiction. But that boundary is is you know when we were in grad school, we were all jerking off to the fact of like oh you know blended genres like you know on this abstract theoretical level but in the end you know if someone wants to write a slave novel in this day and age you just can't because you're going to get something wrong and you're going to piss someone off even though you know the fact is it's just fiction and you know but the thing is if you even imply something that's wrong you didn't mean to some you know some barth's death of the death of the author shit you know what i mean Uh you're fucked it's over and the novel right. could be great. It could be a great read. It could be even a one of the, you know, it could be a shitty pulpy novel that gets it wrong. It could, you know, but that that has some entertainment entertainment value. You know, it could be this. I don't know, but uh, you know, it could be, you know, literature with a capital L. But at the same time, I I, I think it's an absolutely uh it's a relevant question because again, going down the rabbit hole, it's like then then where do you stop? If you want to make a Marvel movie, and and there's a bunch of people who's who say it sucks, then is that wrong? Scorsese says it is. You know. So if you so if you make a film that sucks, but like it satisfies all the the quotas or all the demands that people are calling for, like is it a good film? That are absolutely in vogue. You know, the demands that are absolutely in vogue, which we have proven time and time and again that you know history is our greatest teacher and that we as humans fail time and time again in our mores and values. Right. So let's so let's just do like a thought experiment here. Let's just imagine not being cynical about this. Let's imagine this. You know, for real. Let's imagine like a, a comic book movie or a superhero movie that's going to be produced by Disney where the superhero is like a transgender character or something like that or like the the character is like a you know like a former rape victim or something like that who you know becomes empowered and like fights crime and like does it for all the right reasons and like represents their community in exactly like the right ways everybody wants them to be represented and like the movie is so positive and so progressive in every way you can imagine but the movie fucking sucks it's mm-hmm. just it's just awful. What kind of reaction do you think that movie would get from, you know, a general audience or from people or yeah. from, like, from film reviewers at Vox or something like that? Like, how do you think that film would be received? I don't know about you, Seth, but, you know, to me, it's almost impossible to say. I think every film it, because at, it, at the same time, you know, we're at a point where when you put something out, it's hard to say what's going to happen. You know, in that situation, I think you'd get a few people saying the that the demographics were being exploited then those people might be lambasted for saying like look we need this it doesn't matter at this point someone's ringing our doorbell i have a feeling that if such a movie were to be made the shittiness of the film would absolutely be downplayed in favor of like this is an important film you know like this has social utility well it it depends on who is uh, who you're talking about i mean whether it's general audiences or critics because i I have to say i mean i read a very broad cross-section of critics and the idea that there is some kind of critical establishment or some kind of unified front on these issues is is a complete myth. And, you know, I mean, th- there have been films like the one that, that you are imagining. And, I mean, you see all different kinds of reactions. I definitely don't think that people are completely, you know, throwing away any kind of art, uh, any kind of aesthetic criteria, you know, in in favor of social utility well i don't think we yeah i don't even think we need to imagine this though i could have just used black panther as an example because black right. panther is pretty but much what i'm describing but, well like, no, well black panther was such a boring uh, i mean I, i'm not going to defend black panther uh, artistically but but that's also you know that that is a very competent slick you know well done movie i mean i, I don't think that that is quite the piece of shit that you were talking about well no it's not it's, no no it's not i mean it's not a piece of shit but it's no better than any other marvel movie yeah you're, you're probably right i would disagree that. no i would disagree there i i personally i mean maybe that's my personal taste but i would disagree there but like I the think, adulation like the self-congratulation that you saw at like the golden globes and the oscars last year it was disgusting what, what you're yeah. talking to me, about it was, it, what, it, it, it was, suffered what you're talking about is what harold bloom rather controversially dubbed the school of presentment and Harold Bloom. And I, I don't really agree entirely with may he rest in peace. May, may he indeed. Uh, I, I don't entirely agree with what, with what Bloom said on, on these matters, but, but he felt that there, uh, that in, in the Academy, in, in, in the university, that mediocre works 
were being elevated despite what he saw as you know aesthetic deficiencies that mm-hmm. uh, it's basically it's what it's basically what you're saying that um, if a work is seen to have some kind of social utility then all of the criteria fly out the window I don't know whether that's the case or not. and also I mean his standards were different than mine I mean you, you know I I I think it's hard to make generalizations like that well to to wrap it up because uh, we're, we're already at an hour so we can uh, start to wind down um, Seth did you have anything else you wanted to say on the Philip Roth deal because I think we should wrap it up in a way that uh, us us of the tribe can speak to our own personal experience with outsiders or not necessarily outsiders, but, you know, those representing our kind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the Jewish question is is a little different just because there is I mean, certainly I, th- I think Roth was at the vanguard in. I can't believe you just phrased it as the Jewish question. <laughs> well, that's that that's <laughs> that's one that's na- well, that's one noun away from the Jewish problem. <laughs> Well, but I mean, I, you know, Roth was kind of at the vanguard of uh, of that in in American letters, certainly kind of within the the modern era. And I, I, there's just been such a, a saturation within American storytelling of Jewishness. So, so I, I don't think that there's any there's any shortage of you know examples that you can look to. So, in that way, you know, I mean, whether it's whether it's Woody Allen, whether it's Larry David whether it's Philip Roth or Saul Bellow or whether it's Mel Brooks. I mean, well, not, not, sorry, not to cut you off Seth, but that tradition did not always exist. That tradition is actually quite new. You know, that path had to be carved by people like Bellow. It wasn't there before. We take it for granted. Now we consider books by Bellow and Roth to be canonical, but at the time those dudes were writing, it was anything but canonical. Right. And, and I mean, you know, to go back to what you were saying about Roth, I think, you know, his novel, The Ghost Writer, is kind of the seminal text on this question. Because the, as I recall, the, the, one of the refrains running through the book that the, the, the main character who is a novelist is asked is, you know, is this good for the Jews? Or at least if it's not even, if, I don't know, I don't remember whether it's phrased that way in the book, but that question kind of hovers over the whole novel. And I think that's an, a, a, a question that has hovered over Roth's entire career. I mean, I, I think it would be hard. To, I mean, some people found, you know, his portrayals to be exaggerated or, you know, stereotypes, what have you. But uh, I, think, I think Roth just saw, saw them as true and authentic. But then there's this sort of external question of, is this good for the Jews? You know, how, how will, you know, what effect will this have if a Gentile reads this on on how they see our our people, right. and, and that's the thing: ex- external criteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the question that a writer should be asking during during the composition process. I'll say one more thing, and I, I do think this actually might do. You know, it might, it might be a simulacrum of uh, putting a bow tie on this. Our beloved Dave Chappelle said that the biggest problem in our country right now is that is that we're not able to disagree peacefully, and so when it comes down to something like well, do I like this movie or this book? And maybe it did get something wrong culturally. The fact that that's not okay, to me, might be the, the, the thing that is not okay right now. I think that's what best represents it for me. Unless there's something outright just, you know, I mean, there's just, just bigotry and chauvinism just slathered all over something, and it's obvious. I mean, if I think it needs to be more okay for us to say, okay, well, maybe this person's got some things wrong, but, you know, for example, for someone to have to apologize for something that they never intended or pull a $500,000 book for something they never intended, I don't know if that's good. That kind of breaks the code of dialectics, in my opinion, of having a good, like, honest conversation about something. And yeah, there's I'm a, there's certainly a, not in favor of censorship. Yeah, yeah I was about well, that, to say. That's well, what that's I was about the, to say. That's, it smacks yeah. of censorship a little bit, you know, and, but, and that yeah. that's my big problem about things right now because – I mean, especially, and and I'll also add, you know, something that I've talked to a lot of people about is the fact that there's a high selectivity when it comes to social justice. And, you know, coming from someone who has deaf parents and the phrases you'll see in the newspaper and, and, and the sort of words that people will use, you know, something like something like, oh, this person, you know, turned a deaf ear to this or like, you know, when it comes to this, like someone's deaf and dumb or like, you know. Like something like right. that, it, like no one talks about something like that. Yeah, or what are you deaf? Like no one talks about that shit, you know. And and I don't sit here and go, oh, if, well, if you say something like that, you're a bad person. But but you know, on the other end, it, like you know, you'll see people just get absolutely lambasted for saying the wrong thing when they might not have really 
meant it, you know, like in that, in, in that way. And I know it sounds maybe a little puerile and like, you know, I, I, I do think people need to own up to the way they behave and the things that they say. But it, I, I'm saying that there should be an actual conversation, not this book pulling, not this hit piecing, not this, you know, X, Y, and Z. That's just kind of how I see it. But um, I will add this. The radar is starting to backfill a little bit. What does that mean? There's, there's a little optimism there. That means the, the storm is starting to redevelop a little bit off the coast. And, you know, maybe we'll see an inch or two. Would that uh, please anyone else out here yeah, other than play, me? Yeah, that would placate me being here. <laughs> there you go. All the, all the way in Europe. <laughs> yeah. I just got to announce that. I'm happy for you. I'll put it on Facebook. But okay. I, you, know, you guys I, got I anything you else you want to add? Hope that's just going to be totally deflated. You know what, Seth? I've already been through it, and you know, I think I you can know take what the winter again. is young. Been there through is... it once. The, the winter is young, exactly. That's what I've been saying to myself all day. As things haven't winter hasn't even started yet. Well, that's actually a myth. We're we're, we're three that weeks away from the solstice, baby. N- yeah, the solstice is actually there's no there's no like written code that the solstice is the start of winter. It's kind of a it's a bandied, a little bit of a. a of uh, apocrypha yeah if you will yeah it is you know in meteorology they actually say that the first day of winter is december 1st well i just made a fool of myself so i guess just as a closing statement to try and tie all this together i think the what's at the heart of this conversation is whether or not writers have a duty to follow the moral curve of progress which is to say do writers have a responsibility to be bien pensant or to be right thinking and i would argue that they absolutely do not Literature has an intimate relationship with liberalism, and there's an argument to be made for that, which I won't go into right now because I don't want to bore anybody with it. But if anyone wants to know what that is, they can read Lionel Trilling Mm -hmm. because Lionel Trilling's whole canon is about literature's relationship with liberalism, which is- Capital L liberalism. Capital L liberalism, yes. The individual, essentially, in the individual conscience, which is what literature is, and the imagination of the self and new possibilities for everything that humans are and everything that humans could be. And literature and liberalism is not the same thing as literature and progressivism. And to me, injecting the progressivist agenda into literature, requiring that writers get things right or like hit the mark or whatever it is they're supposed to be doing now in response to what's happening in the culture would succeed only in making literature boring and stripping it of all its danger and all its risks and all the things that makes literature fun. And I don't know about anybody else, but I certainly have no intention on being on my best behavior when it comes to that. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 43rd episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your hosts, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Seth Katz and Jared Marcel Pollan. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was edited by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Bell.